Well, Ray, thanks again for joining us on our, uh, our podcast, City is Playground. Um, this, of course, is uh, something that the Leadership Foundations has produced to accompany the book that we wrote uh, around our history. Um, we, you and I have talked a lot about how you in many ways have been the uh, theological pope of the Leadership Foundations. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not you want to claim <laughs> that, given some of the characters that are in our movement, <laughs> you, you would have to decide. But uh, without question, uh, in Leadership Foundations, and I know many connected to Leadership Foundations, the notion of being able to be a biblical people uh, as we engage cities has been critical. And yet we have found ourselves oftentimes going to the book, uh, beginning in Ge Genesis and finding um, truth be told, it not to always be a helpful book because it feels saturated in things like goats and sheep and mm -hmm. shepherds and, you know, kind of rural realities. Mm, right. So it really was you, um, I think principally you, uh, that helped Leadership Foundations and many others uh, go back to the scripture and in a sense recover its sort of effectiveness because that it could be read as an urban text. So with that kind of opening sort of monologue from me, um, what we hope to do today is to talk about how is it that you've been able to see uh, the scripture as an urban text when it feels at times like the history of interpretation has in fact viewed it just the opposite. Um, so let's start there and say, okay. <laughs> how, did you, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, everything has a, a context. And um, I had moved into Chicago with my wife and two preschool children in 1965. And um, actually for the second time, I had been in Chicago six years earlier as a student at the Moody Bible Institute, um, where I was a classmate of Reed Carpenter, actually, uh, and for you, a and time. You, and you survived. I did. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, we've had a lot of fun talking about that yeah, subsequent years. But um, coming back, I came at a time when um, the so-called Bible people, Moody Trinity Wheaton, the, the sort of triad of mm -hmm. famous schools, mm -hmm. Um, were fleeing the city. I mean, they're, they're people. They were literally um, moving to the suburbs. Uh, probably the greatest challenge of my life. Mm. It certainly was not Darwin, Marx, and Freud at the University of Washington. They were a stiff breeze. Mm -hmm. But nothing challenged me like the failure of my white church mm. under pressure. And this would have been in the 60s? 60s. Okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, cities were on fire from Newark to Watts and east and west coast and everything in between detroit chicago newark all these cities are burning mm. uh, race plus other things the vietnam protests and mm -hmm. it just all hit together and uh, for my wife and me it was a shock to see this behavior because we had just moved across the country into the city of chicago uh, into the inner city actually uh, to accept a church position while I could go to seminary and graduate school. So um, what happened is um, I took a year of leave from my studies after the first year and put my wife in school, mm. finish her degree. Mm -hmm. And what I did was basically start studying Chicago big time. But the second thing I did was I'm going to find a biblical theology as big as the city of Chicago. Mm. Uh, because I didn't have one. 
Uh, I'm proof you can read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek and not know what it says <laughs> about <laughs> cities. Um, I, I had taken courses on issues like the virgin birth, which is mentioned two times in the text. I would believe it if it were mentioned once. It's an important idea. Mm-hmm. But so first thing I did was take the Hebrew-Greek concordance and discover that um, the word city or cities occurs in the Bible 1,250 times. Mm. I and, and again, the virgin birth twice. Yeah, okay, yeah, so, as yeah. opposed to this. Yeah, and yeah. I... And, and not only that, the Bible begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. Heaven is described as a city. In mm-hmm. Jerusalem, the earthly pattern is a pattern for the eternal city, and mm-hmm. that, that's all fleshed out. But anyway, um, then I decided, well, I'm going to see how many times the word city occurs um, in each description. So I discovered, for example, 51 texts on Sodom and Gomorrah. 51, 34 in the old, 17 in the new. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things I learned is, my goodness, 10 people could have saved that city. Mm. If you read Genesis right. 18, right. God said, you find nine other believers, I'll save it. That's when I learned that the presence of the godly is the gift of preservation for the ungodly. That is 10 mm. Christians in that city mm-hmm. can make everybody else a survivor. Uh, so Christian, having Christian present, this is the kind of equivalent of the salt and light deal. You got to have Christians in the New Testament down yeah. there yeah. Uh, in the nitty gritty of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I began to study then um, and count the cities and began to do case studies of the cities. I learned that you know in the Sodom story, for example. Uh, God clearly did destroy that city, but wanted to save it and could have. Uh, I began to look at the other principles involved there, which were it's okay to pray for a city. Abraham prayed for it. Um, But as I began to look at cities like Jericho and Bethel and Jerusalem, Antioch, Nineveh, uh, Nineveh, oh yes, big Mm -hmm. time, Babylon, Mm -hmm. I was discovering a lot of new principles. Then I, I realized I, I need to study... And the, just to, um, again, orient our readers, and this really came out of a very practical question for oh, you, which was I you're would, in Chicago and you're going, does the Bible speak to this? Exactly. Yeah. I Chicago was a stiff breeze. You know, dirty, ugly, a, noisy, and corrupt. Okay, still can be Our mayors are named daily. We pray for our daily bread. Um, we... It's easy to follow Jesus politically in Chicago. We all know he rode a donkey, not an elephant. You know? <laughs> and we never doubted the resurrection. Every four years, whole cemeteries rise and vote. And our theme is vote early and vote often. <laughs> I really miss Chicago politics. But, but truth is, um, as I began to look at the text of Scripture, I realized I needed to study the people who had worked in cities in the Bible. So I started looking at Joseph, for example. I just went right straight through the Bible. Hmm. Careers. Joseph, we have 13 chapters of sacred text given over to this this person who became an Egyptian, became a government official, who had two seven-year plans, one for budget surpluses and one for budget (laughs) deficits, combined socialism and capitalism in a very interesting way. You read Genesis 41 and 47, 
And I asked the question, I've asked it everywhere around the world, to mm -hmm. students and others, was he a capitalist or a socialist? And I give them those texts. And they usually come out fighting uh, <laughs> because it's yeah, very right. clear he was, he was using both elements. Yeah. And he not only used the instruments of a pagan pharaoh, but he used it to feed the whole Middle East, including God's people who had to come down from Palestine mm -hmm. to eat, including his form, former family. Mm -hmm. um, so I began to say, well, maybe in a hungry world, God is still calling people to move into those structures and use those resources for that. And then I would go to, to the Daniel story. I mean, here, here's a person who's in Babylon and he is called to master the education system. He became summa cum laude in the graduate school, you know, <laughs> great, while rejecting the values. He mastered the wisdom tradition of the Babylonians, obviously became bilingual. Mm -hmm. uh, they wrote on clay tablets, so he would have been able to do that. Uh, he did not turn against the culture. He was accepting that. As, in fact, I think he understood what we know from Jeremiah 29, seek the shalom of the city where I sent you, pray to the Lord on its behalf, in its shalom you find your own shalom. Yeah, exactly. So it turned the hierarchy upside down of my own values. I read that in, um, in October of 1965. It just blew me away. Hmm. Ray, seek the just peace of Chicago. Now my hierarchy was very simple, love God, family, church, and if you have any time left over, vote in the next election, <laughs> something like that. And, and this just said, seek the just peace of Chicago, and then yeah, the family the and all these things yeah. will be blessed. Yeah. And then the next verse says, unpack your suitcase, raise your kids there, don't decrease, etc. build houses and live in them. In other words, put down your roots. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, I was temporary in Chicago, I was going to go on to... Yale or someplace and study. Yeah. And um, so we ended up burying ourselves there for 35 years. Mm -hmm. um, so the text began to speak to me. Then literally, I mean, I didn't have a computer to do this like they have now. I started counting the ways, for example, David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites about 1000 BC. So Jerusalem is the center city of the, of the Bible in both Testaments, mm -hmm. from 1000 BC to the end of the New Testament, where the New Jerusalem mm -hmm. is, is emerging. And I, I, I began to look at all the ways God loved on that city, mm. all the different methods to convince, you know, everything the kings did, the priests did, the prophets did. I mean, Jesus wept over it, he died in it, church was born in it. I, I started looking at all the ways hmm. that the text, I just pulled out the text of Jerusalem. And I began doing that with the other cities and uh, realizing, my goodness. We, then I started looking at uh, Paul. And I, it's so fun. I put half the students in Philippians and half them in Colossians. I've done this lots of places. Pastors, it's great fun. Yeah, you've done it with me. Yeah, so, yeah. I say, I'll give you an hour. You go away as you Philippians now. I want you to pretend that's your whole Bible. What would you do in your city if you just had Philippians? And I say the same to the Colossians. I want you to pretend this is your whole Bible. That's all you got. And everything you do in your city is because you just have that one book. 
And then I, I give them this little test. I said, pay attention. This is your hermeneutical clue. Pay attention to where Jesus is located in your book and how Jesus is described mm -hmm. in your book. Well, the Colossians come back an hour later, and they have discovered that Jesus is high and lifted up, powerful. Mm -hmm. He's the Christ over us and ruler who chases out principalities and powers. And um, he's the substance of everything. He's the glue that holds everything in the universe mm -hmm. together. So they come out with an urban ministry that says, well, we're going to clean up the toxic waste dumps in this town. <laughs> uh, we're going to take on the the banks that are discriminating against yeah, poor right. people in loan portfolios. And, and the Philippians are sitting across the room saying, what have you been drinking, smoking? <laughs> um, because in their book, Jesus gives up the power and that location moves into the, in, in, to the heart. So everything the Philippians come back is personal. They're going to plant churches. They're going to go on prayer walks. They're going to do retreats. Mm -hmm. They're going to do one-on-one -on -one evangelism. They're going to do, you know, just personal. Because, frankly, that's all that book gives you permission to do. Mm -hmm. Everything. And then my question is, now, by the way, are they, which book is right? <clears throat> How close are they to each other in the Bible? <laughs> back to back. I said, now, in Paul's thinking, and I think in the biblical truth, these are... Two sides of the coin. Yeah. The powerful Christ and the personal Christ are the same Christ. They're two sides of the faith. We, we need churches that can go up to the power. At the same time, in a high-tech world, we need a high-touch Jesus. We need Philippians and Colossians mm -hmm. to come together. Unfortunately, they came on apart in the 1920s in this country. Yeah. And one group of churches took Colossians and went social. The other group took... Philippians went only exclusively personal evangelism, and they basically kind of demonized each other. So I think our task biblically is to pull them together mm -hmm. and and to celebrate a church that can speak to the whole totality of urban yeah. experience. And so I, these were the things I was discovering, and it, it electrified my own preaching and approach. And I began to share it in the faculties uh, around Chicago and chapel talks. And, mm -hmm. and people said, you should write this stuff. And so I wrote a book called, uh, eventually, called um, uh, Theology as Big as the City. Yeah, which was after your first one, right? Yeah, the Urban Christian. Christian well, the yeah. interesting thing about Urban Christian, which some of this appeared, was 1984. I'd been asked by the Archbishop of Canterbury's group to come to England, and those chapters in that book are my lectures at ah, Oxford ah. with the whole urban priority unit sitting in the room. And one of my students, Jim Hart from Liverpool, took good notes. Oh, I love it. And he edited it, and that came out as the book. I've, uh, I've been with you a long time and known a lot about you, but I did not know that part of the yeah. story. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, back, yeah. back to the uh, Bible, Ray, I mean, one of the things I remember you saying early on that was um, a wonderful challenge to me is that the the biblical view of cities is that they're living breathing organisms yeah so analogous, Actually a gift a gift a, of grace a gift of grace yeah. and thereby going back to your point about paul um paul actually walked in to philippi or mm -hmm. corinth and yeah. treated it as if you oh, would yeah. treat a neighbor mm -hmm. and then say what what <clears throat> is most needed here at this time so as a result um the 
you know, application in a particular city will always be different simply sure. because the city is different. And we, of course, know that here in the Northwest. I mean, mm -hmm. the difference between Seattle and Tacoma only separated by 20 miles. Right. But at times it feels like yeah. universes in terms of yeah. how they operate. You think about Delhi and Dallas. Oh, um, sure. And I maybe say more about that, that almost utilitarian um, ability in Paul to size up oh, the city yeah. and then create the appropriate sure. ministry application. If I took you on Paul's second missionary journey real quick, I'd show you he never uses the same approach twice. I mean, he went to the cultural capital, Athens, in Acts uh, uh, 17, and he, he did a museum tour sculptures, <laughs> plazas, mm -hmm. you know, it's a cultural city. And then he went to the scholar's place and quoted Greek poets. He understood the context. Athens is a cultural capital, intellectual capital. It wasn't any longer the political capital. That had moved on to Rome. But culturally, he was appropriate. He then went to Corinth. Corinth well, was and a... Maybe before you leave Athens, yeah. and if, if I remember the text right, actually it gets to a place where he says, um, you know, I've taken this museum tour, yeah. and I notice that there's a statue that <laughs> exactly. does not have a name. Um, mm -hmm. I'm here actually to tell you its name. Yeah, yeah, that's and, right. It's and I beautiful. You, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how the Orthodox work in mission. Hmm. They've picked that theme up. Mm -hmm. You go in listening for the Spirit, and then you start where that is, mm -hmm. instead of coming in and announcing your own mm -hmm. message. Mm -hmm. So Paul's discovery learning, and then he starts by commending them. Oh, you you did a great job of trying to identify every god, and you didn't want to offend any one of them. So you have this statue. Oh, right. That's the one I want to talk to you about. Right. That's the one who became yeah. related to me. Uh, so Paul knew how to move in. Now, when he was in Rome, he was in house arrest. Chapter 28, verse 30, he said he rented a house for two, two years. Mm-hmm. Verse 23 said he argued with the Jews in that house from morning till night about the kingdom. But he had six associates out in the city. Tychicus, Epaphras, Aristarchus, Lucas, Demas, and Marcus, and they're all out in the plaza sharing the gospel. And when they found these people, they would bring them over to Paul's house. You see, he, he had a team yeah. in that case. Yeah. Um, so everywhere Paul went, Corinth, he started a, well, the, the church was so split he didn't join either one of them. He created a, his own business, tent making or leather work, which the biggest piece of leather is a tent, but furniture, clothing, shoes, all tents. You make out of leather. Uh, one scholar has written about this tent making and suggests that that was the most strategic business in an ancient city, mm -hmm. uh, the Middle East, leather work. The animal keepers would sell you their skins the blue-collar people would make the products, and the upper classes would buy the buy products. Them, yeah. So by Paul being in that business, he was in touch with this whole range sociologically. Yeah, and he supported himself in Corinth and later on in uh, a couple other cities that way, Thessalonica, for two years. Uh, so Paul had this capacity to move in and use different approaches. And that gave me this mantra I use. I'd go around and I'd say, well, Paul, what are you seeing? Mm. For to me, to be Pauline means to somehow have that curious mindset, this capacity to, to see what Paul might be seeing if he were walking around that city and noticing what I'm beginning to see. Um, so the study of cities in Scripture was not just an academic exercise for me. It was 
highly translatable. Mm-hmm. So when I would go by a church I had not stopped at before, this, I trained myself to do this. Knock on the door. My name is Baki. I'm new pastor in the city. I need your help. I wonder if you'd tell me the most important lesson you've learned about being a ministry here. Mm. And I, but I'd start with an apology. Um, excuse me, but I owe you an apology. And they'd say, excuse me, what'd you say, apology? I said, yes, I've been driving by your church, but I've never stopped to thank you for your ministry here. Mm. And then I would ask them if they would show me, teach me. That came right out of um, a Chicago experience with with Patty um, Williams and Claude Marie Barbour. A French woman named uh, Claude Marie was a brilliant scholar. She's still living and teaching at McCormick and Catholic Theological Union, the two seminaries in Hyde Park in Chicago. I got to know her very well, and we team taught a lot in those years. And uh, Claude Marie uh, had been a missionary in South Africa, and she had been brutally treated, put in prison, abused physically in every other way by soldiers mm. and prison prison guards, it finally expelled. Her crime was living with black people. Mm. And she came emaciated and broken, finished a doctorate in cultural anthropology. Then she went into the toughest neighborhood in Chicago, Grand Boulevard, Oakland, gang-infested area, and she walked around the streets and said, excuse me, can you tell me what God is doing in this community? Mm. And nobody laughed. It was so far out. And they recognized the sincerity of this mm-hmm. foreign, foreigner-speaking French accent, <laughs> quiet voice. Yeah. Finally, one lady, a black lady said, oh, oh, you've got to see Hattie Williams over on South Lake Park. So she went over and knocked on Hattie's door and she said, Hattie, the people in the community have been telling me that the Spirit of God is teaching you. Could I move in and pay rent while you teach me what God is teaching you? And Claude Marie, Dr. Claude Marie Barbour, French educated, Sorbonne grad, Protestant faculty of Paris, she moved in with public aid mom named Hattie, um, widow of six kids, um, lived with her. And out of that came Shalom Chicago. And wow. Claude Marie calls it uh, bottom-up, um, reverse mission, mission reverse. And that's where the educated comes and asks. Well, that kind of discovery learning is, I think, the model where Paul mm-hmm. comes along and looks at a city and doesn't immediately respond. And the thing I recognized in Reed Carpenter and in the early days of the Leadership Foundation was that that's what we were about. Mm -hmm. We were going to listen to the city and to the leaders of the city and find out what the agendas were that were surfacing, Mm -hmm. not to introduce our program, but to maybe in a collaborative way, get them together. That's where leaders You know, so it it raises a question, Ray, that that I think fascinates me. In order to um, listen to a city, to Mm. uh, go in and ask questions, um, you you have to have some sense that the city is a good place, um, mm-hmm. a place that God's spirit inhabits. Yeah. And I think the truth is, is that most people, and I've done this in classes I've taught, if I 
write city up on the whiteboard and say, now <laughs> let's, uh, you know. First of, word come to yeah, mind. It's, it's, it's all negative. you know, it's all negative. Yeah. So what was it about reading the scripture that began to shape your sense that this actually is maybe a more positive place? And again, not glossing over the, yeah. you know, infidelities and the mm. things that take your breath away, but, but somewhere in that, it appears that the scripture began to move you, shape you to say, um, God inhabits this place, and as a result, I can listen. Mm-hmm. I can ask questions. Yeah. Harvey Cox wrote a book the year I moved to Chicago in 1965, Secular City, and he was far too optimistic for me. That was not speaking to my experience. Later, Jacques Ellul wrote a book, and it was too negative. Hmm. It just didn't fit. So somewhere between Harvey Cox and Jacques Ellul, I was beginning (laughs) to read. I found a comment in St. Augustine in the City of God God. where he said Cain needed a city. Because the, the vertical fellowship with God was broken. He needed horizontal fellowship. So, of mm. course, sinners need the city. And for a person to move into a suburbia, suburb, is to deny the fall of mm. humanity. Mm. I mean, I, reading that was also a kind of wake-up call for mm-hmm. me. I began to track that in, um, in the Reformers and others. Uh, of course, the early church was all urban. And all through the history of the church, uh, as I found, the people viewed the city as a refuge place, um, sanctuary. That, um, that almost that Old Testament sense absolutely. of cities of refuge. Absolutely, the cities of refuge yeah. uh, for criminals as well as non-criminals. I mean, there were certain things that were in Moses' legislation about that that were pretty clear. Mm-hmm. And as I looked at the pattern of that, uh, I, I resonated with what the Reformers were teaching recovering the idea of common grace. The city is a city wall, a sewer system, a healthcare system, a transit system, transit for the blind or the needy, uh, the safety, the education. Um, That's a gift of common grace. And you pay for common grace by tax money. What churches do is tithe money, but it's all God's money. And so this idea of the whole stewarding a city. Um, I was on the future Chicago planning committee for three years, and we were looking out over the Great Lakes one day, Lake Michigan. It dawned on us that this is 20% of the surface fresh water on the entire planet. Mm-hmm. And the question was, how do we steward God's water system? How does a city, for example, shut down Sherwin-Williams paint company, which was polluting, and it was going into the, creating acid rain and dropping into the lake. And then all the cities around there were drinking the water, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Toronto, Chicago, were all drinking the same water system. And cellular damage to unborn babies um, in the future is Mm -hmm. going to be the result, unless Mm -hmm. we can stop the pollution of God's water system. Mm -hmm. And thinking of a steward, a city as steward, was... It came for me right out of um, Ezekiel 16. Chicago, only it's to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, your sister city in the north is Samaria with her daughters, the daughters of the small towns that depend on the city. Your sister city in the south is Sodom. Well, I began to look at Chicago. Your sister city in the north is Milwaukee. Your city in the south is is um, uh, Memphis, New Orleans, 
St. Louis, Memphis, New Orleans. We're polluting them. Mm. We flushed, in 1906, we reversed the Chicago River to flush all our sewage down the Mississippi to get it out of Lake Michigan. Uh, you can't treat your brother that way. Mm-hmm. I began to realize that um, that the migrant streams coming into Chicago were the aunts and uncles, Polish City, Mississippi, Daddy. Uh, in other words, mm-hmm. I began to see the city as as the prophet Ezekiel was seeing the city. Mm-hmm. The city, I can't hate Wheaton and Deerfield, the suburbs. That's family. They're the daughters of the city. Mm-hmm. It changed the paradigm for me. Mm-hmm. Um, of seeing the city as more than, and this is the fault line of Christians. I think the fault line of Christians is those who are, those Christians who have a theology of the city coming out of a Bible understanding, holistic, common grace, institutions, um, stewarding this whole reality of a city as a calling, um, as opposed to those who target the city because it's that's where the Got people are. People. Yeah. Right. yeah, I'd say the one group has a theology of the city; the other has a missiology for the city. But I'm I'm on the side of the what I think the biblical organic view of city is. Mm-hmm. The city is a gift. Transit systems are a gift. Mm-hmm. The presence of the pediatrics to the geriatrics are gifts to the preborn children, AIDS kids, fetal alcohol damaged kids. We're going to be there and disproportionately because that's where the services are. The fastest gr- growing group in America, according to Vintage in Pittsburgh, is the elderly over 80. They're competing with federal dollars. Mm-hmm. And that comes right out of an understanding of Mark 5. Jesus is, hurry, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Jairus, you mm-hmm. know, she's one of us. Good mm-hmm. kid. We know her name. Mm-hmm. On the threshold of motherhood, 12-year-old. Oh, man. Uh, hurry, Jesus, and then this bag lady grabs him, touches the garment, stops him cold. Now, the gospel is right there. Jesus could distinguish the accidental touch of the mob in the crowd Mm -hmm. from the person who reaches out by faith. But then Jesus does something very interesting. I mean, if looks would kill, this woman would be dead. (laughs) Jairus probably looking down at her, graveling on the narrow street there saying, you have just killed my daughter. You have just made the rabbi unclean. You've touched him as a bleeding woman. And Mark beautifully brings these stories together. The old lady has been dying for 12 years. The little girl has been living for 12 years. Mm. Who do you help? We know which one. The one who pays us, the one whose name we know, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What does Jesus do? Reaches down and grabs her and names her. And he changes the story. It's no longer about two dying daughters in the city. It's about the fathers of two dying daughters in the city. Jairus, you have a daughter dying, and you care. Meet my daughter Mm. in the same city. That's beautiful. So I think as I began to reflect on the scripture, it really challenged the pastoral issues for me. Who do I help in the parish? The one who pays the bill? Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things, Ray, that I'd love to have you make some comment on, because this was a very powerful biblical example for me, is part of what you're talking about is to really take on a city that's going to demand uh, people with different gifts working together. Mm-hmm. So talk a bit about Ezra and Esther and yeah. Nehemiah yeah. around yeah. a common vision oh. and 
their gifts and how they are choreographed together. Yeah. Well, I love to go around the country at this time saying that we have five books in the Bible from Iraq and Iran. Mm. The two from Iraq, of course, are Jonah and Daniel, who end up going there after those contexts do dastardly things against Israel. They kill the 10 northern tribes, and then finally they kill the south. And then God sends these people over there uh, to serve them. Mm -hmm. But in the Iranian book, it's Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And I'll put it like this. The Persian parliament had just passed a pogrom, kill all the Jews, Hitler's idea. I think Nehemiah is an organized guy. He worked for the government, so he called Ezra and Esther and said, what are we going to do? We're all dead. Esther said, here's my plan. I'll run for Miss Persia. If I win, I get to move into the palace. If I'm in the palace, I'll access power. I'll change the law. Good. Go for it. Okay. Nehemiah said, well, here's my plan. Uh, I'll get a government grant, letter of credit, leave of absence, and I'll go back and start a model city's development plan. Hmm. And I'll do community organizing. I'll get all the people in the community I'll have a letter of credit from the Persian government in my pocket, but I won't cash it and I won't call the Judean construction company <laughs> to build the wall. I'm going to do an empowerment model. I'm going to get everybody, perfumers, and they're all listed there in the book. Yeah, right. Everybody gets a chance to help build that wall. Probably wasn't a great wall. Probably was wobbly and, and strained, but the people loved it and it was their wall. So then the, the clergy person, Ezra, says, gee, Esther, you go inside the system, change the law, and she disappears from history. Right. Um, and God's na name is not in this book. That's a reminder that somebody has to go where God's name isn't known in the smoky holes of politics sometimes mm -hmm. to access the power to change law so Nehemiah can get his stuff. Nehemiah's got to go do that so that Ezra can finally come along, rebuild the temple, and reinstitute the law of God. Now, that's a partnership of diaspora people who are called to help old mother city. Hmm. And for me, that's very powerful today to remind Americans that God must love Iran and Iraq because they get five books in the Bible so far. We have none. <laughs> <laughs> he must really love those places. It's also a reminder that it there, there's more than one kind of mission. In the Iraq books, God is sending the Jews abroad to do mission in in. Uh, Assyria and also mm -hmm. in Babylon. But in the other model, the diaspora is coming back to help old mother, um, Jerusalem, mother mm -hmm. city, to rebuild. And to do it, they had to do these accessing power and all of that. So in a world in which people are crossing oceans, migrations, human patterns, I think that's huge. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me, Dave, I didn't want to get this lost. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the most interesting things that's happening now in America, and this is a challenge for urban ministry and a biblical understanding, the oldest churches in the history of the world are the newest neighbors in many American cities. Hmm. The Syrians who are being forced out of Syria right now are ending up in Burbank, California. Burbank is becoming America's Syrian city. Syrian hmm. Catholic, Syrian Orthodox, Syrian Evangelical, usually in Burbank. The Armenians who celebrate next year the 100th anniversary, celebrate, in quotes. quotes uh, yeah, yeah. They're going to remember it. The Holocaust, yeah. 1.4 million killed. They live in Glendale, California. 
the Egyptians. The Egyptians, and this is a book about a guy in Fairfax, Virginia, who the, the name of it, Ray is. is called Motherland Lost, The Egyptian and Coptic Quest for Modernity by Sam Tadros. He is describing the painful exit of Egyptians to the U.S. and other countries. But to the U.S. they come, Fairfax, Virginia, a thousand families showed up in the last two years from Egypt in mm. Fairfax, Virginia, and also in uh, L.A., where Bishop Serapian is the bishop of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Now, these are the wounded people who are coming into our cities. Mm -hmm. What they don't need is for us to go try to make Baptists out of them or Presbyterians mm -hmm. or Pentecostals. These are people who paid their dues for 2,000 years. They were in the upper room. They're mentioned in the upper room, mm -hmm. Acts 2. Mm -hmm. And as one old Orthodox uh, uh, bishop said to a seminar group that I was leading, in Cyprus, Bishop Arab Kishishian said, you know, you Westerners tend to think of the Great Commission as go everywhere in the world, 2,000 miles, preach the gospel. You can do that. Your passports permit that. Ours don't. For us, the Great Commission is 2,000 years. Will we be faithful in this spot for 2,000 years? Mm. We got the gospel 2,000 years ago, and we've been stewards of it here. We can't go anywhere. So... And I listened to that, and I said, oh, my God, that's exactly right. That's mm -hmm. why we need each other, mm -hmm. by the way, why we need to partnership. Mm -hmm. What I'm calling for now is churches in America to cross the street, to find the nearest refugee churches, and to come quietly and listen. Don't come inviting them to your church. Come to learn their struggle. Mm -hmm. Come to ask what they need from us if there's any help. I think hospitality is where we need to move. And so the Arabs are in Detroit. The people fleeing Lebanon are in Dearborn and Detroit and so on. Fairly predictable. But cities where you have leadership foundations, there were times when they came here for opportunism just to get employed. There were times when they wanted to send their kids to Carnegie Mellon or to IIT or MIT or mm -hmm. you know Caltech, but but now the countries are shipping the wounded believers to our cities, and I think we need to be really pastoral at mm -hmm. this time. So we need a biblical understanding of of the pastoral dynamic of helping the whole church. So go back and read the chapters about Egypt in the Bible. Jesus was a refugee in Egypt. When he needed help, they reached out and offered hospitality to Jesus. Now mm -hmm. the Coptic Church has come. We need to be able to reach out and, and connect the dots on that one. So these are, these are pastoral concerns, but it emerges from a biblical understanding yeah. of the city. That's beautiful, as right? a gift of grace. And, and in ending today, we're running out of time, but you, know, you have coined the term um, the whole gospel and the whole church for the whole city mm -hmm. and I, I love the way you have both poetically uh, and prophetically challenged many of us to think in those ways and I I think again Ray this this time with you has has just been wonderful so many blessings oh, to you and thank we you, hope Dave. hope to do it more do come in the again future. I, I will be here <laughs> thank you yeah okay. grateful to you